0: This is the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Vashi Capello Show on this Wednesday, December 27th. I'm Robin Gill, sitting in for Vashi, who's on vacation this week and next. We begin with the topic that has been at the forefront for much of 2023 and weighing on the minds of so many Canadians, and that is the economy and where it's headed in 2024. All eyes will be on the Bank of Canada in the coming months and whether Governor Tiff Macklin will drop rates. In his final speech of the year, Macklin said he expected 2024 to be a transition year where the high interest rates slow down the economy and lower inflation.
2: When we see clear evidence
3: that we're on that path to 2%, yes, at that point it will be time to discuss uh, if and when to cut interest rates. But we're not there yet.
1: Not there yet. That seems to be the common refrain. Joining us now is Ian Lee is the associate professor with Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. Hi Ian, thanks for joining us.
4: Uh, my pleasure, Robin.
1: Listen, do you think the Bank of Canada has successfully accomplished what it set out to do?
4: Um... Not completely, but they certainly are going down the right road in the right direction. Um, they haven't accomplished past tense what they're, they set out to do because they have not yet arrived at that 2% stated strategic objective for inflation. But let's give them credit. They, we A year ago or so, we were, what, in the around 8%. So they've certainly brought it down. Once again, showing that all that nonsense that I was reading and hearing by pundits saying, you know, interest rates don't work. That's just an old-fashioned theory from, you know, a long time ago, you know, ancient history and all that sort of thing, thereby demonstrating that those critics didn't understand arithmetic. Uh, and I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean that very bluntly. Interest so you rate think it was
1: the right take move?
4: Money out of people's pockets because the rates go up. And, and so what that does is you have less money to spend. So it cools the economy, and and that's what they did. They cooled the economy, and inflation is coming down.
1: So you do think this was the right move?
4: Um, uh, My criticism of the bank, if you're asking me do I criticize them, and I was very, very critical, was in 2020, 2021, 2022, when the Central Bank of Canada, and some other banks too, but we're in Canada, let's talk about that, they drove interest rates down to a quarter of 1%, which is almost free money. That was lower... Lower than in the Great Depression, lower than in World War One, lower than in World War Two, lower than in the Korean War. And I don't think that anyone can argue that the 24-month pandemic was of the same degree and depth of pain and suffering as the 10-year Great Depression or the six-year Four-year World War One or the six-year World War Two, where millions and millions of people lost their lives, it was not at that level. And in fact, Mohammed Al Arian, the very distinguished economist in Europe and the head of Cambridge University, has said they made a mistake. They made a huge mistake. We drove the rates down far too low and pumped far too much monetary stimulus into the system, as did the fiscal side. And uh, I argue they panicked. They overreacted. They drove down the rates too low, we put too much stimulus into the system when we should have been much more targeted just to the 16 percent that actually lost their jobs. And thereby and then between that and shutting down the supply chains, what we did is we ignited a fire, an inflation fire. And and so, you know, Pogo keeps saying, you know, we've met the enemy and it is us. Well it was. We we unnecessarily, because they panicked, the decision makers, fiscally and monetarily. They put far too much stimulus into the system, and then we had to spend the next two years undoing it with these very uh, high interest rates that caused yet more pain and suffering. But they recognized belatedly they made the mistake. Tiff Macklem acknowledged it publicly, and so they said, "Oh my goodness! Now we've got to fix this problem with higher interest rates." And so they're they're now fixing it, and they are going down the right road. Although if they hadn't driven the rates down so low, I don't think they would have had to react as as uh, as aggressively as they did finally react by driving the rates all the way up to five five and a quarter.
1: If you're just tuning into the Vashi Capello show, I'm Robin Gill sitting in for Vashi. We're talking to Ian Lee with Carlton University's Sprott School of Business, looking ahead to the economy in twenty twenty four. Ian, are we technically in a shallow recession right now?
4: Probably um, uh, the uh, the the reason I'm I'm not sitting on the fence on this. I, I I think it's a distinction without a difference. Don't misunderstand me. Recession's are serious, and when you know the economy drops two percent, four percent, five percent, that gets really serious. Right now, what we have is we're just a, a hair, a, just a, a tick above zero. And maybe we're just a tick below zero. Well, what's the difference between a minus one tick and a plus one tick? Very, very, very little. The economy is flatline. Let's be clear. 2024, it is not going to be boom times. It is not going to be happy days are here again. The the growth rate in the economy is going to be flatter than a pancake, to use that old phrase. The, the good news is, is that rates are not going to turn around and go back up. The good news is inflation is not going to turn around and go back up. That is the good news. The bad news is that the economy, the the interest rates did work. They did cool the economy. The economy is going to be flatlined throughout 2024, and we will not see real what I would call recovery until 2025.
1: So when do you expect the Bank of Canada to start dropping rates?
4: Um, I think that at one point I thought, you know, they would start to come down in um, uh, the first half of 2024. And then the last, the GDP growth numbers and the, and the inflation getting kind of sticky in the last two uh, reporting months uh, caused me to uh, think that they're going to push that back a little bit, uh, the, the, the decline, the cut in interest rates. So I think we won't see it until the second half of 2024 of next, of next year coming up. I do believe they are going to go down. So there is more good news for people. They are going to go down. Are they going to go back down to a quarter of one? Those days are not coming back. Those days were unsustainable from the very beginning, as Muhammad al Arian and others have said. We should never, I won't repeat myself, but we should never have gone that low when you make money essentially free. But, you know, the long-run, long-term natural rate, as it's sometimes called, of interest rates is probably around 3%. I'm talking the central bank rate. Well, right now we're very, very much higher than that. So I think we will see an interest rate cut, uh, two or at least two or three interest rate cuts in the second half. So I will not be at all surprised, in fact, if they're uh, below 4%. I will be surprised if they're above 4% by the end of next year. So I think we'll see interest rates down into the mid-high threes, central bank rate, by the end of next year
1: know, we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, I often look at what's happening in the U.S., and I know a lot of people do as well. The U.S. Federal Reserve has hinted at three cuts in 2024. Yeah. Do you see us following a similar pattern, or are we on different planes?
4: Um, you know, I've, I've seen these graphs, and they're great graphs, by the way, that show the uh, central bank rate. Just Canada and the United States. I see, you'll see them in some bank branches, by the way. And they go all the way back to 1950 until the present. It's just uncanny. They're just two lines. You know, one's red, one's blue, right? And they absolutely are in lockstep with each other. You know, Central Bank goes up in the States. Canada goes up, goes down. We go down. And there's a reason for that. It's not because we're copycats. It's because we're a vastly smaller economy. We're only one-tenth the size of the U.S. And the, if the interest rates get too far to line, what happens is hot money, so-called hot money, mobile money, capital, will uh, skedaddle and go off to the States, which drives down the dollar, and the Canadian dollar, and we import a third of all of our goods, and then that feeds inflation back into the system. For that reason, for that fundamental reason, the Canadian rate, central bank rate, is always going to be very similar, not identical, but very similar to the U.S. rate, because if you let it get too far to line, it's too disruptive to the canadian economy and so if they go down three point three uh, um uh, moves uh cuts uh in 2024 then you can bet that we'll go down probably uh three cuts as well maybe one and more but we can't be out by two or three points between them and us
1: and on that note i'm going to thank you ian lee is with carlton university sprout school of business we're going to take a short pause but when we come back well, another economic indicator, and that is housing affordability. Did the ban on foreign buyers do what it was supposed to do? I'm Robin Gill sitting in for Vashi on the Vashi Capello show. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about that next.
0: Welcome back. To the Vashi Capello show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Robin Gill sitting in for Vashi, who's on vacation this week and next. Before the break, we were talking about the economy and where it's headed in 2024. And housing certainly goes hand in hand with the economy. Whatever happened to the law preventing foreign buyers, and what has the impact been of this ban? At the beginning of 2023, the federal government introduced a law to prevent non-Canadians from essentially buying any property in Canada for two years. The reasoning was that foreign buyers were driving up the prices in major markets like Vancouver and Toronto. Now, the law doesn't target existing owners, but future ones. But when you look at the numbers from Stats Canada... And they only go, the, the earliest, the, the, the best numbers we have right now are 2021, which indicate that foreign buyers made up less than 5% of ownership in Vancouver and less than 3% in Vancouver. John Pasalis is the president of Realosophy Realty. He spoke in an interview recently when the foreign buyers ban was introduced, saying it's a good policy, but that foreign buyers aren't the issue.
5: I don't think foreign buyers in and of themselves are the dominant, you know, buyers in the market. They're not the cause of rising home prices or rapidly rising home prices, but it's still a, a good policy to put forward.
1: Joining us now is Dean Tester. He's an housing advocate with Make Housing Affordable. Hi, Dean. Thanks for joining us.
6: Great to be here.
1: Um, listen, what were your thoughts when this law was first implemented?
6: well i think this is a solution for politicians not for the housing crisis i think you know everyone's looking for someone to blame for the housing crisis um but fundamentally uh, a foreign buyers ban uh, does nothing to solve the actual problem which is that we need to be building enough homes for the people who live and want to live in canada um this is a program that really Um, exists on the margin. Like you said, it uh, affects a very small fraction of buyers. Um, The people who are buying are uh, almost all renting out those properties. So people who live here are renting them. Um, uh, In some cases, they're actually creating new supply, which is good for housing affordability. Um, So, you know, the program, uh, in my mind, is more designed to create a scapegoat than actually solve the problem. Uh, the government wants to be able to blame uh, foreign investors. It wants to be able to blame the wealthy for the housing crisis when the reality is government's not letting us build the homes we need uh, to make housing affordable again.
1: Is it so much that the government is creating a scapegoat or is it that there were so many people? I mean, I was a reporter for many years and I was covering all the people complaining about the hot um, real estate market in Vancouver as well as Toronto. Do you think that they were catering? to to their voters who were trying to create a scapegoat.
6: Well, yeah, and I mean, that's that's exactly what I mean, right? I I think this policy uh, falls in the same vein as a vacant unit tax or an Airbnb ban. Um, It makes sense intuitively to a lot of people, but in reality, the policy has uh, very little impact. Um, Just to give you a sense of the scale of the problem we're facing, uh, the CMHC... Says that to make housing affordable again in Canada, we need to be building about 700,000 homes per year until 2030. Uh, Right now, those numbers are uh, well under 300,000 a year. So we're not even halfway to where we need to be. And, you know, when you're talking about the foreign buyer's ban, you're talking about, you know, maybe a a few thousand units across the country, maximum. It's it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage. Um, so, you, you know, again, this is a political solution, not an actual solution to the housing crisis.
1: I think, though, that we don't have uh, the best picture of foreign ownership here because... There are loopholes with others buying on behalf of foreign owners. We also know that the economies are slowing down for other countries, so they may not be tending to invest in Canada. It's, it's not as clear cut as, um, as it has been before. Um, let's talk about Housing Minister Sean Fraser's uh, recent announcement about allocating funding to build more homes by reducing red tape. Is this the right path forward?
6: Yeah, it's it's absolutely the right path forward. I mean, if you want to build a home in Canada, for starters, in in our major cities, it's illegal to build anything bigger than a townhouse on the vast majority of residential land. So even if if, if you're in Toronto or Vancouver, you'll see the vast majority of residential land is single family homes or townhouses, or um, you know, uh, it, it's not multi unit residential housing um, like you would see in in most cities, uh, around the world. And, and so that's, that's one challenge uh, is that you're just not allowed to build affordable apartments in our cities. Um, uh, the second part of that is that, um, it's, uh, 30% of the cost of every new home is taxes. So you're talking about, um, we really punish builders in this country with, with taxes. You're talking development charges, parkland fees, uh, plus property taxes, plus HST, um, there's a whole slew of taxes on housing that make it, um, you know, we tax housing more like it's cigarettes or alcohol than an essential need. Um, so that's, that's one challenge. And then the the red tape, it's, it can take uh, years and years to get housing approved in, in our cities. We've got so many processes designed to slow down the building pro- uh, process and, um, you know, every year of delay can cause, uh, prices per unit to go up by tens or even hundreds of thousands, uh, of dollars. We've seen the spike in, uh, in, uh, the cost of building materials and in the cost of labor. Uh, we think about the legal fees that go into build housing. Um, you know, these prices have just shot up and a lot of these houses that we, we wish we had now, um, were proposed four or five years ago. And, um, you know the cost has doubled since then. So instead of someone buying for three hundred thousand five years ago, they'll be looking at seven or eight or more uh, today. So that's that's the reality in a lot of our cities, and 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 all of those issues have really contributed to our housing crisis.
1: Yeah, if you think about it, you know building a home is far more expensive now than it was four or five years ago. Let's talk about the interest rates as well. That's mm-hmm. making it difficult for developers to you know get ahead of. The game as well I mean I've talked to some developers in the Vancouver area and they're putting things on pause because they're not sure if they can afford to do some of this stuff what is the solution in your mind a few moments ago you talked about multiplexes is that the solution instead of single homes
6: it's part of the solution and and it's more so about uh, creating housing options of all kinds in all neighborhoods right so You know, nobody's going to come in and say you have to knock down your house and and build more, uh, build a multiplex here. Right. But it's it's about giving people the option. You know, if you live, uh, if you own land right next to a major transit station, you should be able to build uh, an apartment building on that land and create dense, uh, a dense urban neighborhood for people who want to take transit uh, in our major cities. Um, If you live Uh, you know, in a quieter neighbourhood, maybe, um, you know, a multiplex is is a better option for the infrastructure that's available there. Um, But it's really about um, making it more permissive and easier to build homes, especially in our major cities. Uh, And then another piece of this is is getting taxes down, right? We think about what does every person need? They need food and they need shelter. We subsidise farmers, we give them every tax break, every subsidy, every benefit, um, and that's that's great. Right. And food, even though prices have, have skyrocketed, food is more affordable than it should be because we treat farmers with such respect and uh, we give them these subsidies and every benefit. Home builders, we aggressively tax them. We make it difficult to build. We treat them like alcohol and cigarettes. We've got sin taxes on housing and people need housing to live. So I, I think there needs to be a little bit of a reversal of, of the way we treat Uh, the building of homes, um, especially in in light of uh, the housing crisis. And again, you know, the important thing to remember here is just the scale of the problem we face. I, I don't think enough people realize how much trouble we're in. This problem is not getting better. It's accelerating. We're in a bit of a false lull here because interest rates have skyrocketed. So it's easy to say, oh, look, you know, the price of housing has only gone up, you know, or 10% in the past year, that's not so bad. Well, the, co- the cost of getting a mortgage is getting bad. Doubled. It's
1: getting bad. Right. Dean, I, I we have to take a break but I, I appreciate you coming in on this Wednesday. Dean Tester is with Make Housing Affordable, still ahead. We're going to go international and talk about the war between Israel and Hamas. Stay with us.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show. I'm Robin Gill, sitting in for Vashi. We're going to turn now to the international stage. Israel's military chief insists the war on Hamas will grind on for months. And Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to destroy Hamas, the group responsible for the October 7th massacre that killed 1,200 people.
7: When we spoke, I expressed again our commitment, Israel's commitment, to achieve total victory against Hamas.
1: But that war on Hamas has taken a devastating toll on civilians in Gaza, where there are no words to describe the death toll and the humanitarian crisis. Joining us now is Casey Babb, an instructor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and fellow with the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Both Israel and Hamas appear to be in this war for the long run. How much longer before the world steps in? Well, if you mean
7: step in to prevent Israel from carrying out operations they need to, I mean, that's not going to happen. Um, But if indeed you mean when will others join the fight, uh, to a certain extent, that that already has happened when it comes to uh, the Houthis uh, who are backed by Iran. And uh, it's now known that the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, Italy, and others have have really stepped up and and entered the fight uh, in in terms of the Red Sea. So um, that's already happening. And if Hezbollah or other countries really increase their aggression, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if other nations come in to uh, deal them a blow and and help Israel regain its deterrence.
1: So this regional war could go on for for several months?
7: It could go on for several years. Uh, I mean, it's important for people to note that Israel is not just dealing with Hamas in Gaza. They're dealing with um, a six or seven front war. So they're they're dealing with Hamas in Gaza. They're dealing with Hezbollah in Lebanon. They're dealing with violence in the West Bank. um, They've been carrying out operations in Syria. They're dealing with Iran. uh, They're dealing with militias that are backed by Iran in Iraq. And they're dealing with the Houthis in Yemen.
1: So when you paint that picture there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for a truce anytime soon.
7: No, that's right. There, there is no possibility of a truce. Uh, there may be a situation in the uh, months to come uh, where we see a sort of lull or a, a, uh, a quiet period, a more quiet period in terms of the, uh, the fighting, but uh, we can't expect Israel to, to, to make a truce with, with people who are set on the uh, death and destruction of their people. I mean... America wouldn't make a truce with, Al- with ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda. And so it, it, it's important for people to sort of put things in, in perspective that, you know, Israel is really the only country in history not allowed to sufficiently defend themselves and, and win a war. So um, for, for there to be anything akin to a truce, the Palestinians need to be de-radicalized and demilitarized, and, and Gaza and the West Bank in particular need to be made you know, areas of peace and prosperity.
1: If you're just tuning into the Vashi Capello Show, I'm Robin Gill, sitting in for Vashi. We're talking to Casey Babb, who's an instructor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and a fellow with the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. Let's talk about the U.S. and its role in this war. What more can it do on the diplomatic front?
7: I think what the U.S. has been trying to do on the diplomatic front is is quite historic. Uh, I would expect them to, to maintain the pressure on on parties involved and, and to keep doing what they can to, you know, secure the release of the hostages who are still, of course, being held uh, in the tunnels of Gaza um, and to, to bring a, a, an end to this, to, to the fighting. Um, and of course to, to help eradicate um, Hamas from, from Gaza. But it's important to note, you know, many people might be wondering, well, is, is Netanyahu even listening to Biden? And of course he is there in, they're in constant talks, constant communication, but, He's likely listening more to the hostile actors, state and non-state, who have vowed to kill him and everyone in Israel. And I think that's probably who he's listening to most. He, take, he takes those threats very seriously, uh, as he should.
1: And as you mentioned, he is in constant contact with Joe Biden, but Joe Biden's entering an election year, and he's got his own problems domestically. Where's that, how's that going to play out?
7: That's a great question. Uh, I mean, that's an important consideration to keep in mind. But uh, it, it's also worth noting that, you know, the U.S. is Israel's greatest ally. Uh, and from government to government, regardless of political turmoil, regardless of turnover from Democratic to Republican, that support is always there. And the public servants, the, the key figures throughout the United States government will ensure that those le- channels of communication remain open
1: is it even realistic of Netanyahu to think he can destroy Hamas? I
7: believe it's somewhat realistic for him to think that he can destroy this iteration of Hamas. Um, and I would imagine they are, you know, they've made significant ground in, in doing that. It's about removing leadership, um, and removing sort of capabilities and infrastructure for Hamas. But to your question, uh, over the years there have been various versions of islamic terrorist groups in the region and so that's not going to go anywhere overnight and that's not going to happen by by getting rid of this version of hamas though there will be another uh, um group set on the destruction of israel rather than reaching a peace uh, with the jewish state and and so it, it's difficult to say but uh Uh, I think certainly Israel can expect to degrade and really diminish the capabilities of of what what they were able to achieve on October 7th.
1: What's support like within Israel for this war?
7: I think the support in Israel is great for this war right now. Uh, I mean the the people of Israel are still in shock um, and are still uh, suffering in many ways from what has happened uh, on October 7th from the trauma uh, there are still well over a hundred people being held hostage um, by Hamas and it is weighing a great deal on the people of Israel uh, certainly um, of course they want this to end uh, and they want peace to be restored whatever that looks like uh, but they also know that they can't live any longer with a fanatical group a genocidal group of terrorists at their doorstep it's just not it's not possible and you know I think Israelis at this point in time, and for the last several years, uh, several decades indeed, you know, would rather be condemned than pitied. Um, uh, Israelis know all too well um, what it means to be pitied and and what that situation looks like for Jews worldwide.
1: Casey, this this is very devastating, this war. I mean, with the loss of life, uh, you know, at some point, though, isn't there going to be pushback against Israel?
7: I think there already has been a great deal of pushback. Um, uh, it's a very precarious situation that Israel is in. Um, you know, the casualties are, are high, but it's 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 very hard to differentiate civilian casualties from... Um, from militarized casualties, um, from from legitimate casualties. You know, when you have people running around in T-shirts and jeans with uh, AK-47s and RPGs, well, ha- who's doing the counting? Uh, what lines do those... Who, who determines what those lines look like? Um, all of these figures, it's important for people to remember, are coming out from the authorities, the Hamas-run authorities. So it would be like getting... a civilian casualty figures from from isis i mean i'm not sure the numbers are always as as credible as as they're made out to be um but of course they they are horrendous and war is hell all war is hell and unfortunately large-scale civilian casualties that that is part of war
1: what about the financial means to keep this war going is that going to run out
7: um i wouldn't imagine that this the, the financial means would run out. Uh, Israel has been in, in uh, um, worse situations before, I don't know, and, and indeed, incredibly uh, devastating and uh, drawn-out situations before, from Ford nineteen forty-eight to sixty-seven to seventy-three uh, to you know the first Intifada, the second Intifada. They have um, reserves in place, and they have allies in place who are who are there to to, to step up and help out, and they'll keep this fight going as long as they need to to secure to secure their area
1: okay casey babb thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us we're going to take a short pause but when we come back we're going to talk about the rose bowl parade in pasadena california we'll explain when we return
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: From Pasadena, California, it's the Rose Parade's New Year's celebration, presented by Honda. On January 1st, the 135th Rose Parade will kick off down Colorado Boulevard, where you'll see live the spectacular floral masterpieces, larger than life majestic floats, spirited marching bands, and high-stepping equestrian units that define this iconic tradition year after year. For millions of people around the world, the Rose Parade is an iconic New Year's Day tradition. It takes place in just a few days in Pasadena, California. And for anyone who's a sports aficionado, you already know this. It's the lead up to the Rose Bowl, a big deal for college football. Now, Canada will be represented in the parade by Toronto's Coding for Veterans. The group is the only Canadian float taking part, and joining us now is Jeff Musson. He's the Executive Director for Coding for Veterans. Hi, Jeff. How are you?
2: Good. How you doing?
1: Not too bad. Listen, uh, big question. How does a company from Toronto end up in the Rose Parade? <laughs> That's yeah, the big question.
2: So, <laughs> for sure. And listen, I apologize for the noise in the background this we're, we're on the shop floor here in the warehouse where the float's getting built, along with 16 others, and it's uh, 100,000 square feet, so, so it's a large place. But anyway, um, Coding for Veterans helps military veterans to retrain for jobs in software development and cybersecurity. And the program launched in Canada in partnership with the University of Ottawa, and, uh, and it's delivered 100% online. And we actually had a number of U.S. veterans reach out to us which really kick-started the conversation of our program expanding to the U.S. And um, as of January 1st, our program is going to be open to U.S. military veterans, and we partnered in with the University of Southern California to deliver the program. And then we wanted to really announce this expansion, and what better way than, um, you know, in the Rose Parade, uh, where you have a million people lining the streets of Pasadena and I think over 75 million on TV, uh, as a great opportunity in which to, you know, uh, thank our Canadian and American veterans, uh, as well as in awareness to retraining opportunities for them.
1: Okay, explain exactly what Coding for Veterans does.
2: Yeah, so we help um, the veterans retrain for jobs in software development and cybersecurity. The program is, uh, for veterans in Canada that qualify, uh, 100% uh, free through their vac- uh, Veterans Affairs Canada Education Transition Benefit. And the job um, in Canada, there's over 175,000 IT jobs that are going to go unfilled in the next 12 to 18 months, and you know similar numbers in ratio in the U.S., and, and it provides a great opportunity to transition from deployment to employment, as we like to say.
1: How difficult is it for veterans to transition from being in the military to this kind of work? Or is there something that they have in common that it actually is an easy transition?
2: Yeah, so when, you know, again, another thing that veterans have said is, you know, it's almost like they're going from serving on the battlefield to now serving in cyberspace. And the program can be completed in as little as six months. Uh, there are industry certifications that they write as part of the cyber program or as part of the software development, and quite frankly, that is what um, employers are looking for. And I can tell you, the average salary of people coming out of our, our program is between seventy-five and eighty-five thousand a year. And so, um, we assume military veterans have minimal technical background. We're really tapping into those soft skills that they've learned, you know, like the leadership, the teamwork, the attention to detail, and then partnering, obviously, in Canada with the University of Ottawa, in which to retrain them for these IT careers.
1: Yeah, so it started off in Ottawa, and now you're expanding to the U.S. What brought that on?
2: Yeah, so in the U.S., you know, it's really our partnership with the University of Southern California, which is taking the same program that we have in Canada, and, uh, you know, bringing it to American veterans. And, you know, what better way to honor someone's service than providing them good careers?
1: What kinds of veterans would qualify? Is it someone who's been on the battlefield? Is it someone who has more technical um, engineering skills? Uh, You would actually be surprised. The largest cohort
2: that we draw from in the military is infantry or artillery and people you know at first they kind of question it but when you look at it it you know if someone for example is a pilot in the air force their um, you know their civilian equivalent is being a pilot for a commercial airline when you're in infantry and artillery there really isn't a civilian equivalent so what our program does is it takes those technical skills that they've learned in the military and provides a pathway in which to civilianize that for jobs that are in demand. And like I said, in in the cyber and software development area, uh, they're plentiful in Canada and obviously in the U.S. as well.
1: Jeff, you started this program four years ago. How many veterans do you think have gone through the program in Canada and how many do you expect to go through the U.S.?
2: Uh, Yeah, so with the program itself, um, you know, it it really builds upon a lot of their skill set that they've learned uh throughout their um throughout their military career right and so with us it becomes um you know just kind of a natural progression for their um you know uh, after serving in our country what better way to honor that service than providing good paying uh quality jobs
1: and you say that there's a talent shortage in in cyber
2: Yes, and um, I'm sure you're well aware of all the, um, uh, you know, the cyber hacks and everything that are happening out there, that the demand for the cybersecurity and finding qualified cybersecurity specialists is really um, hard. There, there are more job openings than there are people to fill them. And unfortunately, that is continuing on as more and more cyber attacks become prevalent in our economy So job security and a long career in this area is something that, you know, uh, graduates of our program can actually look forward to.
1: Now, this may be coming out of left field, but how does AI play in all of this? Uh, Does that potentially take away jobs? Uh, can you repeat that
2: question? There, AI,
1: artificial intelligence, how does that play into this? Could that potentially take away jobs in cybersecurity for, for veterans like the ones you're training, or could that actually supplement and help them?
2: No, not really. In fact, AI and all that will actually complement um, the skills of uh, people in our mili- uh, you know, in our program because you still need people to analyze the data that AI you know will generate and there's still cyber skills that really have to um you know identify when you look at it AI helps to narrow down the focus and look for where the hack has happened right where before you were 100% reliant on you know humans to try and determine that what computer and AI and machine learning are able to do is really narrow down where the human should be looking so it it's very much complimentary versus um, you know uh, being a competitive threat.
1: All right, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Jeff Musson is the Executive Director for Coding for Veterans. He's right now in Pasadena, California, getting ready for the Tournament of Roses Parade. We're gonna take a short pause, but when we come back, we're gonna to talk to our panel, and they're gonna weigh in on the big stories of 2023, as well as looking at the priorities of all the political parties. You're listening to The Vashi Capello Show. I'm Robin Gill, sitting in.
0: This is The Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
4: This conservative leader has no long-term vision for this country. Is that prime minister that is burning a hole in the pockets of Canadians. Higher interest rates are painful.
3: Credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen.
5: Why do we need a special rapporteur? What does this rapporteur even do?
3: It sounds like a fake job. It's not helping Canadians have confidence in our democracy and electoral system, and it's why it really cries out for a public inquiry.
1: Those are just uh, some of the responses from our political leaders when talking about the top political stories of 2023. I'm Robin Gill, everyone, filling in for Vashi Capellos. And that's what we're talking about with our daily debrief panel today the top political stories of 2023.
3: The Daily Debrief.
1: Joining us for our panel today, Chris Day, President of Winston Wilmot, Jason Leader, President of Enterprise Canada, and Laura Peck, Vice President of Transformational Leadership Consultants, Fellow in the Riddell Masters of Political Management at Carleton, as well as teaching an MBA program at Shannon School of Business. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice, nice to, to be you. here. Thanks for Chris, let's start with you. What was your top pick for political story of twenty twenty three? Well, it has to be
5: what everyone in my circles was talking about, and that is the cost of living and affordability. Um, you know, this this was a very real pocketbook issue that spilled over into the top political issue uh, of the year, and um, you know, to the, to the winner goes the spoils, right? Um, the people who tapped into that most authentically and most uh, early, um, I think, have, have reaped the benefits of that being the case, and um, and I think that that has to be unquestionably uh, the Conservative Party under under Pierre Poilievre.
1: Jason, what do you think is the top story of twenty twenty three?
8: I think the um, the possibility that Mr. Trudeau, who's had a number of lives, um, you know, politically, um, is, is a, looks a lot more vulnerable than he used to be, right? I mean, I think the top story has to be about the top, the top job, the top government, the federal stuff. Uh, the prime minister has looked at times lost and at times sort of disillusioned, at times angry, and at times just sort of rudderless. And I'll just say, from, you know, to, to Chris's on housing specifically, right? Whether it's thirst of living, the cost of gas, all that stuff. But on housing specifically, you know, you know, they've been in power for years. I've really heard them, I think, as people have lost a lot of hope and a lot of optimism. and And... Um, I think the, the, the fact that he's really politically vulnerable in a way that he wasn't before or hasn't been before, you always sort of figured, well, he'd probably figure out a way to pull it out. I think most average Canadians might have thought that uh, up until now. And I think most Canadians probably think he's done. I'm not saying he's necessarily done. I'm saying, you yeah, know, I'm a conservative. I wouldn't mind if he was done, but I'll just say that I think a lot of Canadians probably think he's done. And I think that's the top political story of the year.
1: Oh that's going to be my next that was going to be that's going to be a question I want to talk about in the next segment. So let's let's hold on to that thought cuz I want to get to Laura. Laura, what is your uh, top political story of 2023? The
9: rise of Pierre Poilievre in the polls has been astronomical to the point where liberals who hate to lose even at the very top level even they are saying that the prime minister has got to go. He himself is saying that he's not taking that walk in the snow. That he really likes the big challenge that is there. However, if history teaches us anything, that you do not announce your leaving until you are absolutely going to leave. And way back in the day, when I was a young staffer, um, you know, and I made my share of mistakes. But even to have a conversation with his father uh, about stepping down was you, you just couldn't have that conversation. And then he himself made the decision. And so you have to be respectful of that. But that has been the big story that Pierre Polyev has just, the polls are, he's so far ahead right now, and the liberals will not put up with that.
1: Chris, do you do you think that the Prime Minister is going to take that walk in the snow and, and leave politics like his father did?
5: It may well be a walk in the sand, because he's in Jamaica right now. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think he'll probably be having some very, very serious um, conversations with his family uh, over the course of these holidays. Um, I, I just don't know, frankly, Robin, if, if he's listening to anybody who will tell him that it's time to leave um because you know frankly he's got a, a you know a shortening runway here where he could exit rather gracefully and um you know still leave the party in in a in a state where it can choose a new leader and be election ready for the you know what they say is the end of of, of the mandate which is in you know sort of fall 2025 but you know if he drags it out much much longer it's going to be really tough for a new person to come in, any new person to come in, and and get the party to where it needs to be to combat the surging conservatives.
1: But there doesn't seem to be an heir apparent.
5: True, true, uh, and you know that that may be something that's weighing very heavily on Mr. Trudeau and his entourage. This Is that um, you know he has brought uh, Christian Freeland very, very close into the fold with him, um, you know, so to the point where. He, People who dislike Mr. Trudeau probably, you know, have, have some spillover effect to, to Ms. Freeland. Um, and then you've got, you know, uh, other rumored candidates who are untested campaigners in Mark Carney. Or you've got, uh, you know, cabinet ministers who are, uh, are dealing with their own baggage, right? Um, you know, and, and there's any number of those folks whose names have been whispered uh, or, you know, spoken aloud are in the corridors of power here in Ottawa. So, you know, there's not an immediate error apparent, but there do need to be some pretty serious conversations if, in fact, there's going to be that change at the top.
9: Well, just to add to that, even if you speak truth to power and you make the suggestion, hey, boss, I just saw John Turner. Wouldn't that be a great idea if he ran? I'm telling you, those cold blue eyes will come back at you with unforgettable speech, <laughs> that's why I admit, uh, I mean, I said that a long time ago, um, and that, and I was met with that, you know, that, that cold blue st- stare, and we all know that the rest is history after that, um, you know, and there isn't, there isn't any air apparent, the other night, I happened to speak to a woman who uh, has a good chance at it, but Uh, she was very diplomatic and didn't really get into the conversation. So those conversations of an heir apparent, it's very difficult for them to fundraise, for them to sell memberships,
1: all of the above. So it, it makes life very complicated
9: for the Liberals.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Jason, I want to talk a bit about polling for Pierre Polyev. Is this lead sustainable if we don't have an election this year?
8: It'll go up and down, no doubt about it. Um, there'll be some blips. He'll have some bad days. He'll have some bad weeks. He's been remarkably consistent in terms of his messaging, which I think is is probably something that is has really. Looked, and I think if um, you know if you look at um, the things that he's done well, um, <clears throat> they're actually even though him and Trudeau are completely different people, probably one of the reasons mm-hmm. why Trudeau Trudeau wants to hang around is he hates him. You know he dislikes him, and vice versa. The two the two men have some serious animosity. I will say what, what Pierre has built so far which is like a complete change from the last guy, which is what Trudeau had in 2015. And and sort of he talks differently. You know, Trudeau talks in paragraphs, um, uh, uh, Poliev speaks in bullet points. You know he's he's he gets to the point immediately. He generally answers the question. You might not answer, you know, uh, agree with his answer, but he generally sort of, you know, says real words in response to a question. Trudeau. It reminds me of the Trudeau 2015 campaign. And we'll, a lot lots of water still under the bridge, but we'll have to see how that goes. But like it reminds me of a complete change from the last guy. Harper was boring. Trudeau was exciting. Um, you know, people were tired of Trudeau. They thought he, or of Harper. They thought he was a bit mean trudeau came sort of sunny ways i'm going to be really nice poliev is sort of like can
1: can you hold that thought jason because we have about 10 seconds left and we got to cut to a break but i i do want to continue this conversation so stay with us we're going to continue with our daily debrief panel i'm robin gill sitting in for vashi capellos we're taking a very short break stay with us
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. That leader has no plan and no vision. Perhaps he should put his glasses back on. What he is doing is not just
5: bankrupting Canadian households, but he's actually tearing our national unity apart.
8: Let's not forget, when the Conservatives were in power, the cost of housing also went up significantly.
0: As he tries to focus on me and spinning all sorts of different conspiracy theories, we will continue to stay focused on Canadians. Canadians will have only two options
5: a common sense conservative government, or a reckless coalition of Trudeau and the NDP. Mark
4: my words, in 2024, we will win back the White House. We will make America great again.
1: Okay, well, we'll get to the Trump story later, but uh, before the break, we were talking to our Daily Debrief panel about the political parties, the top stories of 2023, what's going to happen with the leaders. Joining us today is Chris Day. He's president of Winston Wilmot, Jason Leader, president of Enterprise Canada, and Laura Peck, vice president of Transformational Leadership Consultants. Before the break, Jason, you were talking about polling for Pierre Polyev and how well he's doing and, and whether this lead is sustainable. The Liberals, however, would like to say that he's go, he's peaking too soon. What do you think about that?
8: Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a worry if you're a conservative, and it's a hope if you're the liberals. Um, he, I was saying, it reminded me of 2015 a little bit, where where a complete different message, different message from the, the person before you, is what the, what Polyev's got going for him. Now, one of the reasons why I think it is durable is I think men generally have have vacated the Trudeau space. I think they've moved out. I think they've put the sign on the lawn. I think they're driving the other direction. And Trudeau has always been really strong amongst women over the last uh, the last number of elections, and that's their hope is to try and you know they've lost some women particularly seniors and some other some other some other women who are worried about you know their kids buying a house and the cost of everything and so that's his hope i think to come to come back but i gotta say it's um the lead is going to be durable and it's going to be durable for quite some time because trudeau remind yourself it goes up and down but trudeau got 31% in the last two election campaigns which is the lowest two numbers for a winner that's happened in 100 years like before that it was harper and and paul martin who had about 36%. so about 31% of the, the country likes trudeau and that hasn't really changed in about 5 years and that's not a number that's sustainable. so if pierre Pollier is able to get 37 38 somewhere near that 40 number that's all he needs to sort of, and all he has to do in order to do that is to keep men about where they are and to stop the stem of, uh, stop the tide of women sort of flocking back to Trudeau.
1: Laura, I want, I want you to weigh in and on your thoughts with that.
9: Well, Jack Mead Singh has been propping up the Liberals, and Jack Mead Singh is no Jack Layton. Um, and he has incorporated all of the negatives, and he's not going to um, enjoy any of the benefits from the good things that he's done, like the dental program. Um, if I'm still alive at 87, um, and I still have my teeth, then I can use it. I'm never going to be under 12 again. And so, um, the, the carbon tax is, is a, is a real problem for him, that's for sure. So there really isn't any beneficial positioning here for Jack Mead Singh. And um, it's uh, it's going to be a real problem for the present day Liberals to keep this going in 2024.
1: Chris, is that what you see as well, that uh, the Liberal and NDP agreement is going to fall apart? Well, it's an interesting
5: proposition, right, because all of the good ideas that the NDP have campaigned on for years have kind of been Taken up by the liberals, and, and you know, they're you know, kind of sharing credit, but not really in a durable sense. And you know, the challenge will be: what do you present to Canadians at the next um, uh, election, whenever that comes? If you're, you've been spending the last three years propping up the government, as Laura points out, and then you know seeking to replace them, that's where I think Pierre Poilievre has a distinct advantage in that he's been entirely consistent over and over and over again: non-confidence and and other. Uh, you know, opposition to the government uh, and, its, and its fiscal track. Um, what both of those men, Pierre and Jagmeet, have going for them is that they are not Justin Trudeau. And, you know, to Jason's point earlier, uh, people have just tired of Justin Trudeau. They don't want to hear his voice. They've tuned him out. Um, and, frankly, he's broken trust with key members of the electorate or key segments of the electorate by consistently over-promising and under-delivering and in politics, you want to do the opposite,
1: Jason. By lumping Jagmeet and, and Jagmeet Singh and uh, and the Prime Minister together, isn't this a, a a good advantage for for the Conservatives? Isn't this something they could capitalize on?
8: It really is. Um, it's uh, it works for us generally. I mean, the um, the Conservatives they have a really a, a lot easier time for sure when they're when they're um, those two groups are grouped group together because the liberals do best when they're in the center of the political spectrum and when they're tied to the sort of what the conservatives will call the extreme left the ndp um it's a lot easier to campaign against them number one people you know sort of especially in this high tax unaffordable environment where you know people are, i think are legitimately concerned about you know are these guys going to raise taxes again they have already raised the carbon tax are they going to do that is sing going to push him to the left he's promising some expensive programs those kinds of things i think that's it's a legitimate advantage and the other advantage i think. Poliev's going to have is, I, Mr. Singh, you've already seen it a little bit, Mr. Singh is going to have to start attacking Mr. Poliev with more vigor, um, because Mr. Poliev is, quite frankly, eating his lunch, right? In the lower mainland of, the, of British Columbia, in some areas of Ontario other areas where we compete, the two party parties compete for seats, he's going to have to start attacking Mr. Poliev. And that's only going to sort of serve to make everyone sort of clear that Mr. Poliev is the man to beat in the next uh, in the next election campaign. So the NDP is in a really tough spot. They don't want an election. They can't afford an election. Mr. Singh's pension doesn't kick in until 2025. He's hoping to avoid an election for quite some time. And yet he's going to have to turn his guns at some point to Mr. Poliev as well. Otherwise, you know, I mean, they got, you know, only a handful of seats in the last campaign it was a very big disappointment that's what a lot of people forget is the last two election campaigns have been big disappointments really for Mr. Mr. Singh he hasn't lived up to the promise and he's looking like he's gonna be not live up to the promise again his strategy is not working and he's gonna have to do something about it.
1: Okay we have a few minutes I want to talk about what you think the priorities are going to be for each uh, party. Laura for you what's it going to be for the Liberals?
9: Well the economy is always the, the big issue housing is a big issue I'm going to add my own construction. That is a really big issue. Uh, if we want to have proper housing for people, we have to encourage more people to go into the construction world. And this is coming from like I've taught at a few universities in my life, and I'm all for academia. I'm just putting my own plug in there. That you know that's where the jobs are going to be. So the economy, jobs. All of those things have to be uh, looked at and what our responsibilities are also to other countries and uh, what are we going to be in the mood for giving uh, towards wars being fought outside of our own country. Big issues.
1: Chris, what do you think the priority is going to be for the Conservatives?
5: The uh, Conservatives need to keep up the momentum uh, that they have built this year. Uh, they've, you know, they've created a new lane for themselves. They've passed the liberals in the middle lane, and they're, you know, speeding down the highway. Uh, but they need to keep up the momentum, and they need to keep tanking the gas, and they need to start putting some ideas um, out there front and center, um, as a, in contrast to the incumbent government. Um, Justin Trudeau uh, is is looking increasingly tired. Um, you know, they they every time he's out, they get you know, off message by events of their own making, you know, all the housing announcements of this fall have been overtaken by the fact that, uh, you know, immigration to this country has increased to a point where all of the newcomers just this year alone have taken up all of the future year announcements that have been made on housing in the last few months. Um, so, you know, th- there has to be that, that delivery versus promise. And uh, Jagmeet Singh absolutely has to find a lane for himself because, uh, you know, otherwise uh, he's going to have his lunch eaten for him next time around if he even gets there because someone like a Rachel Notley is, is soon to be a free agent and could be gunning for that top job.
1: Okay, Jason, I, I'm going to I'm going to leave the NDP in your hands besides, you know, clinging <laughs> on to power until he can get his pension. What else will be the priority for Jagmeet Singh?
8: <laughs> well, learn what, what like Wab Canoe won in Manitoba. They uh, came close in, in Alberta. That Western populist, uh, sort of, or at least center, more middle of the road NDP. Uh, you know, I he's gonna, it probably should be his priority. His policy priority is going to be pharmacare. He's 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 let everybody know that. That I don't think that's the right thing. You know, like 80 percent of Canadians already have. Okay, PharmaCare coverage, and I think he's going to all in on something like, like that. So he's got to fight for relevance, and he's got to. Well, the stuff.
1: music is rolling, which means we have to cut you off. And I hate cutting you off, but it's been a great discussion. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be
0: back. Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show. I'm Robin Gill sitting in for Vashi. Well, here is a very heartwarming story. 25 years ago, Narendra Bad gave her kidney to her husband, Gurdale. He was born with only one kidney unbeknownst to him and only discovered that when that kidney started to fail and she stepped in. They had a very complex situation because they had young children at the time. She was a teacher who had to use up her vacation and sick leave to do this. He's a self-employed realtor, so they had to limit their income, and we want to hear about their story and how it all began. They join us now from Richmond, BC. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Good morning, Robin. Thank you for having us. Good
1: morning. Your Cordella, why don't we start with you. What was your daily situation like when you realized your kidney was failing?
3: Um, well, the fear factor has to see what's, what's coming and, uh, you know, not knowing a whole lot about it. So it was more or less, uh, you know, we're just uh, kind of thinking, okay, what the process we have to go through with a young family is, um as you'd mentioned with, uh, you know, uh, four children uh, you know to look after and uh, I think it was just more or less uh, the unknown but um, we had we an excellent care with at St. Paul Hospital with Dr. Landsberg and his team.
1: What options did you have at the time? Did they say you needed a, a transplant immediately? Um, was there someone who could help you before your wife could help you?
3: Well, you know, and uh, when I went, to, so, you know, they basically prepared me, said, you know, you, your kidneys are failing, and uh, you got to go on dialysis, which is my at that time my uh, kidney function was around twenty percent. So basically, first thing was, you know, I'd get ready to go on dialysis, and then I went on dialysis, and then at that time, uh, basically, then the you know options were either we can go on to the um, to the list, or um, uh, if I know anyone in the family that would be interested in um, doing a tissue match. And then uh, th- that basically was the easiest and the fastest way of, uh, you know, getting a kidney because uh, if you're on a waiting list, the waiting list is so long.
1: Narendra, did you have any trepidations doing this? Uh, no, none at all. Um, it was something that
10: uh, I felt that I had to do. We had, as Dale said, we had four young children. And then Dale was in his mid-30s and uh, was not expecting uh this to be happening at uh, such a young age for Dale. Uh, we were told in, uh, originally maybe mid-60s, 70s, he might have kidney issues because he was born with only one. But this was very unexpected uh, in the mid-90s um, when, our, when, our, when our kids were so young. So, you know what, I didn't give it a second thought. I thought, you know what, this is something that I need to do. I have... Uh, um, you know, a spare kidney that I you know, can give, and I, all I wanted was it to be a match, and uh, luckily it was, and um, it was sort of full force ahead from there. And it's like, you know, I just it was something that I felt that needed to be done.
1: And no you had thought. young kids, so you would yes. do it all over again, would you, Narendra? Of course, I would. I, yeah, without even a second thought,
10: I without consulting anybody, it was just something that you know what. If, if i can it was it's a, it was a matter of um you know saving my husband i don't think you know it's like something that just I, I knew i had to do it and i wasn't afraid and i just went you know what it's you know medically we're so fortunate you know that all this is medically possible and uh yeah
3: so just- Robin, if i may add even the the social workers at the hospital the doctors They were always, you know, just asking, are you sure, are you sure? But uh, she was, you know, dead set on, uh, you know, moving forward and uh, getting the test done. The closer we got to the match and more excited, actually, she was that, uh, that she was a match.
1: I think your story is wonderful, and I, I'm sure that, you know, your marriage is even stronger because you, you share this kidney, um, so to speak. But what what would you like to see more of? Would you like to see more living donors, and what do you think are the barriers that are holding people back? Narendra, why don't we start with you? Um,
10: okay, so... You know, for us, because you know, we just celebrated this year our 25-year kidney transplant anniversary. So we have a kidney transplant anniversary and we have a wedding anniversary, so we're lucky to have two anniversaries a year. So we just celebrated our 25th, and you know what? I think our main thing is, one, that, you know, um, you can survive very easily on a single kidney. I don't feel that my health is... Um, is any different than it was before. I don't feel any different. Uh, there's no other medical situation that I've encountered just because I have one kidney. So that everyone can survive on one kidney where, you know, this is one extra part that we have, the spare part that we have that we can actually give to someone else to save their life. Um, we were sort of, we lived in an extended family and we were fortunate enough to have help. Um, Because my kids were so little, they were uh, under the age of six. I had four kids under the age of six, two boys and two girls. Um, My sister-in-law took time off work as well to take care of the kids while we were in the hospital. So it was, uh, I took an unpaid leave from work. And because we were an extended family situation, it worked out. But most people are not. Um, in that situation and we don't want the obstacle of finances to deter anybody from not donating a kidney. Um, So we just want to encourage businesses, companies, everyone to adopt their circle of excellence work leave policies to cover their employees so that whoever wants to be a living donor can without having the um, financial burden. Because It's a long recovery process, Um, and you do have to be, you know, off work, but financially it's something that you have to, you know, you have to, you know, manage and work out. And we were fortunate enough to to live, you know, 20 minutes from St. Paul's Hospital, but people have to come from all over the province um, and to, first of all, come here and to have accommodation here, recover here. It's a huge financial... um, it's a huge financial stress, but if you know employers can take some of that stress off by um paying employees while the while they are away, um I think it's a long, in the long term it's um you know it's a win-win situation for for everybody because if we can get people off uh, a transplant list uh by having uh, you know living organ donors, I think that's going to uh you know it's a win-win situation for everybody.
1: Goodale, I know that you advocate for more people to be living donors, and and you too are asking companies to change their policies to ensure wages are paid, and so that people don't have to use their vacation pay or their sick leave, that um that they that they are still paid. Tell us more about that.
3: I think it's very very important for the employers to realize that they, you know I mean employers um, you know they cover all other incidentals you know if somebody's hurt or they're sick, but this is something that's a life changing. Um, um, you know that somebody is willing to do that. Uh, you know, donate to someone, and then the last thing that they should be thinking about it is that okay, how am I going to make my mortgage payments? How am I going to, you know, put food on the table for my family while I'm, you know, uh, recovering from this? So I think if we can get uh, the employers to do that, and in the long run, like Narendra said, it's it's It'll be a less burden on the uh, medical system. It'll be, um, you know, the person can have a normal life. Like after the, uh, the transplant, I still remember, like uh, waking up and my body felt cold. Before it was my temperature was blood pressure was so high. So, you know, getting back to normal because the dialysis, from what I've been told, is but does about fifteen percent of what a normal kidney does. So you can imagine, you know, you're dragging yourself all day, and but if if you can have that, and the employers can, and it, it, I think it's a lack of a, um, knowledge. People don't know; they're not aware of it. But if they can, um, you know, sign up their companies and their employees, let their employees know if somebody's willing to do that, that we will be willing to... Uh uh, cover their uh, their wages and I think that would uh, encourage people um, to step forward and help friends. have Since we've had our transplant, we've had a lot of people come to us and um, within the community and also, you know, asking Narinder how it was and this and that and they move forward with donating, um, you know, to their family members or to their friends and colleagues. So I think it's um, the more um, awareness we can bring, I think the better it's for everyone.
1: Okay, I want to thank you both for taking the time to speak with us. You have a wonderful story, and we appreciate that you've shared it, and it's good to know that you're still in good health um, after uh, 25 years later. So all the best to you in the new year.
3: Thank you so much, Robin, and all the best to you, and uh, thank you for giving us the time.
1: Thank you. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to continue with what it's like to to be a a kidney or an organ donor and the process uh, involved. I'm Robin Gill sitting in for Vashi Capellos.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capellos show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show. I'm Robin Gill, sitting in for Vashi, who's on vacation. Before we went to break, we, we we spoke with a couple about how the wife donated her kidney to her husband 25 years ago, and they are celebrating the 25th anniversary of that donation. And, you know, tis the season for giving, so it was one of the reasons why we, we brought this, um, this couple on from BC. Just to give you some numbers though, according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, a total of 2,900 organ transplants were performed in Canada in 2022, 80% of those transplants used deceased donor organs and 20% used living donor organs. And as of December 31st, 2022, a total of 3,700 Canadians were on wait lists to receive a transplant, transplant. You should know, though, there's a process that's involved so that, that donors have to go through to ensure that they can handle this psychologically and financially. And to talk about that is Jody Max. transplant social worker. Hi Jody. thanks for joining us.
11: Hi Robin, thanks so much for having me.
1: First of all, how do you help patients make sure they're comfortable with with this living donor situation?
11: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, as we heard that wonderful story um, from Narinder donating to Girdale, um, you know, they mentioned that the doctors and the social workers on the team are constantly making sure that people are making this choice on their own. It obviously has to be a voluntary thing because this is an optional surgery that live donors don't need so um, we go through there's a whole series of months of testing leading up to when they actually come and physically meet uh, me as a social worker on the team and during my time with them I'm having extensive conversations about why they want to do this why they want to put themselves through a surgery they don't need um, and making sure that they have the support they need in place that they're emotionally ready and that financially they can handle doing this and taking the time off. And um, of course, finances are a barrier, as we heard um, already, and, and we know. So, um,
1: what we, do you what do you tell them? What do you tell them when it when you talk about the the financial barriers?
11: Well, you know. It, people do have to be able to take time off for a good recovery, and they need to be able to take enough time. And everybody's individual about how they recover, but most people need a good six to six to eight weeks off to recover. And there are some people who can't proceed with donation because they can't afford to take that time off. So, of course, we really want to encourage more companies to offer the paid donor leaves that we heard um, Narendra and Girdale talk about with the Living Donor Circle of Excellence. And now the Living Donor Circle of Excellence program is a program to really recognize companies that provide paid time off for a living donor. And it's a partnership between the Kidney Foundation, the Canadian Society of Transplant, as well as the American Society of Transplant. Um, And, you know, as you you
1: just, oh, sorry, go ahead. Jody. that's okay. Jody. do you think that's enough? Uh, You know, it's a voluntary program. Do you think that more needs to be done to encourage this? And we should mention that this is only in B.C.,
11: well, the Living Donor Circle is actually Canada and American wide, so it's it's not just in BC. Um, but it's it, basically the program is done to encourage. So yes, we do want to encourage more companies and businesses to offer paid donor leaves, because that can make a huge difference. As we heard, you know, Narendra talk about, she had to take unpaid time off and and used some of her vacation time, and they were lucky to have the support in place from extended family, but not everybody can afford to do that, and people shouldn't have to do that. I mean, we're talking about the best of humanity here. These are These are people who are coming forward simply to help somebody, and we absolutely want to encourage that. Um, As you mentioned, the numbers are so small. Um, You know, I I was surprised to learn that less than 600 people a year donate In Canada, And we really want to make it as easy as possible for that tiny minority of people who are willing to do this. Um, So offering paid time off is such a simple thing that companies can do. And because the numbers are so low, it really is unlikely that they're going to have to support a donor um, very often uh, at all.
1: That's a very good point. Can we talk about the emotional toll and what that's like for patients?
11: Sure. For donors? Um, so emotionally, you know, this, this is a difficult thing to do. You have a group of very healthy people who, uh, are used to feeling great and it's very hard to wake up feeling worse and it's hard to be patient with the recovery process that everybody's body goes through at their own pace. So it can just be emotionally challenging to go through that. And of course, for often for people, um, when they are donating to a close family member whether it's a spouse or you know a parent or child they've they've been around that person for years watching that person feeling more and more unwell and getting worried about them so emotionally it can be quite a roller coaster ride for people when they go through the recovery process there's a combination of relief but also just the the intensity of having gone through Um, often a long period of time worrying about somebody and now slowly being on the other side.
1: We have a couple of minutes left but I want to ask you what the recovery process is like. I know it's different for different people but Mm -hmm. give a sense of what it's like and how long it takes.
11: Well you know, most people feel pretty rough for the first few days in hospital and gradually are getting better. It's very common to have a lot of fatigue and tiredness as part of the body's natural healing process and also the lingering effects of the anesthesia. So a lot of times people are, are resting and sleeping a lot and pretty low energy. Their mobility, so their ability to walk around and get up and down is limited at first. And um, sometimes their their appetite and sleep uh, is all thrown off for a few weeks and then you know many people are starting to feel much better by the four week mark but not everybody and it can it can often take um you know several more weeks of lingering tiredness before they sort of feel back to normal but you know for people who are very busy and active it's hard to be patient with that process and take things easy and really listen to your body's signals and rest as much as you need to
1: Can I ask you, do you enjoy helping patients uh, with this kind of work?
11: Absolutely. I feel extremely privileged to work with such a dedicated team of amazing nurses and doctors and surgeons uh, and, of course, other social workers. And I, you know, the donors I work with, they really inspire me every day. They, They really are these amazing, generous people who don't like to think of themselves that way. They don't ever want the praise, but... You know, especially when we think about how few people are willing to do this, they really are these remarkable people who are taking a big chunk of time um, out of their lives to just simply help somebody, and and that inspires me every day.
1: Jody, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, you've given us a lot of information, and um, I'm sure that uh, I hope that this inspires other people to, to perhaps uh, donate uh, in, in the new year. Thank you so much, Robin. It's been a real uh, honour to be here and to be part of this
11: program. And for anybody who may be interested in finding out more, please do check out uh, your local Kidney Foundation website. Thanks so right. much.
1: Dodie Max is a transplant social worker. Thank you so much for your time. If there's anything you want to hear back on this show or catch an interview you may have missed, you can listen to the Vashi Capello Show podcast. You can find that on your iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can subscribe to our show to keep up with all the latest news you need to know. You can also follow us on Twitter. I want to thank very much the producers Noah Wachter and Stephen Ellsworth who've helped Create this magic on this show and work so diligently behind the scenes. Until tomorrow, have a great day.